out here and being able to share the Word of God at the same time. So it's a, it's a joy and a privilege that we consider uh, being able to be here to share with you today. I must confess to you with the announcement that was just made, it is difficult to speak to you on the subject that the Lord has laid on my heart to speak to you about. And uh, I think that maybe before I do that, I need to just share w with you something from my heart. About 12 years ago, I pastored my first church. It was in uh, West Germany. I was called to be the pastor of the Han Baptist Church in Han, Germany. Now, the word Han is the short for the word Hanchen in the German language, which means chicken. So I became the pastor of the Chicken Baptist Church in Chicken, Germany. Uh, big time stuff. And I went there, it was mostly American military, and I went there and had three of the most marvelous years of my life. My wife and I look back on that time as, as perhaps three of the best years that we've ever known. We made some of our deepest friendships, we met some close friends, and when I went there, I met an attorney. He was a, the defense counsel for the base, for the U.S. Air Force base that was located there. And this guy was a fairly new Christian. And he was a jogger, and he heard that I jogged. And so he came and said, Sammy, he says, I understand you jog. And I said, yes, I do. He said, could we go jogging together? And so we started jogging together. Uh, actually, I found out that he was a runner, I was a jogger. And uh, so I quickly had to devise a plan to slow him down. And so I said, listen, if I'm going to do this with you, you know, I, I was real spiritual. So I said, we've got to uh, memorize scripture together. And so we started memorizing scripture, except that I picked scriptures that I already knew and he didn't know. And uh, so I, I, what I did was I slowed him down because he'd have to work on these scriptures as we were running. And uh, we had just a great time, but he always picked this one hill. And it was a very difficult hill. It was so difficult that I called it uh, a hill called difficulty. And we would run up that hill, and we would be running up, and he was a former Marine, you know, and he would say, up the hill, over the hill, through the hill, conquer the hill. Come on, Sam, you can do it. And uh, he'd be at the top of the hill, and I'd be struggling, you know, trying to get up the hill. And finally and eventually, I would make it. But we had a wonderful time. We memorized. The first verse we memorized together was Jeremiah 33.3, which says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And uh, we, we just had a great time. We became best friends. Uh, we, we prayed together. He got involved in our men's discipleship. And he began to grow in the Lord. And he became strong in Christ. And, and we began to dream together. And we began to pray together about reaching the world for Jesus Christ. He had a wonderful family. His daughter was the same age. His oldest daughter was the same age as our son. And his youngest daughter was the same age as our daughter. He had four daughters, two of them in between those two ages. And uh, we dreamed together. We prayed together. We cried together. He led people to Jesus. And, and I taught him how to win souls and to bring people to Christ. And it was so exciting. We came back to the United States, both of us, at the same time. And we had a dream of building an evangelistic ministry that would literally impact the world for Christ. And, and we began that ministry. It's the ministry which I'm doing right now. This was all before I, I wrote my books or, or anything like that. And, and we had this burden and this vision. He was healthy. He was strong. He looked to the Lord. He loved God with all of his heart. And one day I received a phone call 
that said that he had been killed in an automobile accident. And I couldn't believe it. He was so strong. He was so healthy. I had to preach his funeral. It was one of the most difficult things that I've ever done. Right before I stood up and spoke, his four daughters stood and sang. And they sang that little chorus from the book of Psalms, Our God Reigns. I didn't know what to say. But as I stood and spoke to his family and his friends, I was reminded of that hill that we used to climb. And how I used to say, Sammy, you can do it. Climb that hill. Conquer that hill. Up that hill. Over that hill. Through that hill. You can do it. And I told the family at that day, that hill called difficulty was overcome because he knew the secret. And that was that verse, that first verse that we memorize. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. Life is filled with difficulties. I don't have an answer to Ken's death. I don't understand. There are a lot of things that I don't understand in this life. I don't understand why someone so strong, who loved God, who, who had family devotions, who taught his family the ways of God and the Word of God, who walked with the Lord, who won others to Christ, a man who had a, a vision for, for reaching the world for Christ. Why in just one moment at such a young age? He would be taken out. I really don't understand that. But I do know this, that God did something in my life. And I'm sure this is not why he died, but, but through his death, God did something in my life. And it was what Betty spoke about just a moment ago, and that is that there is a sense of urgency about life. You're young. And you think, man, I've got 40, 50, 60 years left. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really do it for the Lord. I've got plenty of time. But I want to tell you something. You really don't have the assurance of tomorrow. And it's presumption to think that you do. And God did something in my life as, as I looked and I preached out at that, to that family and I, I saw them in the hurt and the needs in their heart. And I saw my, my friend who was stro so strong and so healthy and who loved God. And I realized that every day is important. And if you're to live loving God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul, returning to that first love, you've got to learn to live one day at a time. And say, God, if today is the only day that I have to live, then I want to live for you. And I want to honor you with this day. And I want to honor you with my life. And as you do that, I believe that you will begin to experience the fullness of all that God wants in your personal life. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had a vision, and I want to speak to you this morning concerning vision. And what is your vision? What is your vision for your life? What is your vision for your ministry? What is your, what is your vision for this school? What is your vision? Isaiah had a vision. And I want us to see what he saw in his vision. It was actually a threefold vision. Isaiah had an upward vision. He had an inward vision, 
and he had an outward vision. Now in Isaiah chapter 6, let's begin reading together with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now before we read any further, I want us to backtrack a little bit. I want us to see that it was in the year of King Uzziah's death that Isaiah had this vision. Now that's significant, it's important, because you see the glory of the Lord had left the people of God. And the glory of God could not come back until after Uzziah's death. Why did Uzziah have to die before the glory of God could come back to the people of God? In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, the Bible talks about Uzziah and who Uzziah was. Uzziah, at the age of 16, was made king of the people. Now that's interesting. I don't know about you, but, um, you know, I would hate to see a 16-year-old be president of the United States of America. Now the king had the responsibility for the economy. He had the responsibility for the agriculture. He had the responsibility for the transportation. He, he was the bottom line man. I mean, he was where the buck stopped. And here at the age of 16, Uzziah had all of that responsibility. And how did he handle it? It's very interesting because the Bible says, And as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, God prospered him. And as long as Uzziah depended upon God, and he saw his need for God, and he cast himself upon the Lord. God blessed him, and God used him, and God honored him, and God prospered him. You see, when Uzziah was young, he didn't know much, but he knew God. He knew his need of God. But something tragic happened. You see, as, as Uzziah depended upon God, as Uzziah cast himself upon the Lord, Uzziah then became strong. It was God who made Uzziah strong. But the Bible says when he became strong, his heart became proud and he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Now when he was young, when he was weak, when he didn't know much, he knew God and he depended upon the Lord. But then when he became strong, and it was God who made him strong, there was a very subtle temptation to become proud. And as he became proud, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. I believe with all of my heart that the United States of America stands in the tradition of Uzziah. There was a time in this country when our forefathers came here and they were weak and they were needy. They were persecuted. They were rejected. And they came to this nation and they knew they needed God. 
and they sought the face of God and they built their lives in the Word of God and they depended upon the Lord. And there was that sense of absolute dependence upon God. And as they depended upon God, God blessed us and God prospered us. And this nation has been raised to the place of greatness in the history of the world. There's a great problem. In a very subtle way, we've become proud. And we've become arrogant. And we've lost that sense of need of God. I was on a radio interview over some of my books and the broadcaster was asking me, uh, about the situation in Romania and the situation in America. And he asked me this question. He said, what is the difference in the church in Romania and the church in the United States? And my response was this. I said to him, the church in Romania, the people there, they are a needy people. They are a persecuted people. They are a hurting people. They are a weak people. They are a needy people and they know it. In the United States, we are a weak people. We are a hurting people. We are a needy people. We need God. The only problem is we don't know that we need God. And in the church today, we have learned well the lessons of marketing. We've got all of the technology and the great computers and there's nothing wrong with that. We have, we have great orators. Tremendous musicians, we've got talent as perhaps no other people in all of the world have, but I'm afraid that we've lost that sense of the glory of God within the church of Jesus Christ today. And the reason is we've become arrogant, we've become proud in our hearts and in our lives. Uzziah had to die before God could raise up a new generation who would seek His face. I find that's interesting because in the Bible that happens quite often. We find that the children of Israel came out of their, out of their bondage. God led them out of the, their, their bondage that they had been in for 400 years to the Egyptians. And God had, had worked mightily in and through them. And yet whenever they came out for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. Now these are people who had seen God do great things. They had seen God work mightily. And yet in the wilderness they floundered. And a whole generation had to die before a new generation could stand and go in and take the land and conquer the land for the glory of God. And I'm afraid that we have made such a mess in this generation where we have all sorts of superstars and yet today... In the history of the church in the United States, it has never been, never been in the history of the church where across the headlines of every major paper in America have been the sins and the scandals of evangelical Christians. And yet we're powerful. We've got TV. We've got radio. We've got books. We have all of these things. We're strong, but I'm afraid in our strength we have become arrogant. I want to say to you, 
that Augustine made this statement. He said that humility is the mother of all virtue. And I believe that just the reverse is also true, that pride is the mother of all evil. And it's a very subtle thing. It's very easy to slip into a place of becoming spiritually proud. Of thinking that you're something because at one time in your life you saw God work, you saw God use you. And you become spiritually arrogant. So Uzziah had to die. When he died, Isaiah had a vision. And I want us to see what his vision was. The Bible says in the year of King Uzziah's Death, the year that he died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Now, when Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision. I want us to notice the first part of his vision. It was an upward vision. He saw God. And I believe the great need today is a new vision of who God is. We need to understand Him. We have all sorts of people talking about the things of God. And we've got a generation who are seeking after the blessings of the Lord and the things of God. And much talk about the gifts of the Spirit. But I'm afraid that we've lost God in the midst of all of this. And what we need today is a vision of God Himself. We need to see Him. Now, what did He see when He saw God? He saw God sitting upon a throne. Now, the throne was the seat of authority. It was the place from which the king ruled and reigned. And so when He saw God, He saw that God was on His throne. And young people, I want to say to you today, that the real source of authority and power in this world is not in Washington, D.C. It is not in Moscow. The real source of authority and power is at the throne of God. And if we are to have a reawakening in the church today, if there is to be a return to our first love, we must gather around the throne of God. And we must see that it is God that we need today. I believe that means a prayer movement. I am convinced more than any time in my life, I am convinced. I cannot say it strongly enough. I am convinced... The great need today is for the people of God to move out in witness, in discipleship, in proclamation of the Word of God from the position of prayer. We need a prayer movement to sweep across this nation that will turn back the tide of evil in our land. I want to say to you that it is possible... That authority, all authority. When Jesus died on the cross, He was buried in a borrowed tomb and He arose from the grave on the third day. Before He ascended to the right hand of the Father, He made this statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And we need to understand that authority, authority... And power is at the throne of God. 
I began traveling into the nation of Romania in 1980. I was amazed with what I saw when I went to the churches there. There was a sense of purity and humility within the churches that I'd never seen anywhere in the world. The churches where I went, the churches were packed. When I say packed, every seat was taken. People stood down the aisles, three and four breadths. They stood around the walls. They opened the doors. People stood outside in sub-zero temperatures to hear the gospel. I remember preaching at the Second Baptist Church of Aradia, Romania. I preached there a crusade. They took out all of the seats and people just packed in like sardines. They just stood one against another. I preached. And I'll never forget one night preaching an evangelistic meeting and scores of people gave their hearts to Christ. There was a girl who was the daughter of the Securitate, Colonel in the Securitate, the secret police, who gave her heart to Christ. There were many atheists who gave their hearts to Christ. There were Jews who gave their hearts to Christ. People from many backgrounds came to know the Lord. And oh, it was wonderful. The church had been packed. People were standing out on the streets in, in sub-zero temperatures to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was a wonderful evening. And after the service was over, a man came up to me. And he said to me, he said, Sammy, did the Lord work tonight? He was one of the leaders in the church. And I looked at him. In amazement, I said, what do you mean did the Lord work tonight? Didn't you see what happened? The place was packed with people, took out all of the pews. People stood back to back against each other. People were converted to Christ. Many came to know the Lord. What do you mean did the Lord work tonight? He said, oh, you don't understand. I said, what do you mean? He said, while you were preaching, I was in a room with 100 men and we were praying for you the whole time that you were preaching. And there was another room with a hundred ladies. And the whole time you were preaching, those hundred women were praying for you the whole time you were preaching. We weren't in here to see what happened. Tell me what the Lord did. I want to tell you something. I've preached throughout this country. I've preached in schools like this, institutions like this. I've preached in some of the great churches and pulpits. But I've never preached anywhere in the United States where there were a hundred men praying for me while I was preaching and a hundred women praying for me while I was preaching. I met a man there who was one of the deepest men of prayer I've ever met. He's a medical doctor by the name of Dr. Titus Colcia. And Titus, as, I, as, as we call him here in America, Titus is the man to whom I dedicated my book, The Prayer Factor. And, and Titus came to me one Sunday morning and he said, Sammy, he says, I want to know more about revival. Can I travel with you? I want to learn about it. I said, I'd love for you to learn about it. Come on and go with me. Well, God put him there, not for him to learn from me, but for me to learn from him. And then we began to travel from city to city. I discovered this guy had memorized most of the New Testament, many of the books in the, of the Old Testament. Man, his heart was so on fire for God. He was one of the deepest men of prayer. And what I discovered was whenever he would pray, he would always appeal to the character of God, to the person of God. He had an understanding of God's character, of God's nature, of the attributes of God. He knew God. He had the mark of God upon his soul. And we would travel from one place to another and he'd say, we must pray for this city. We must pray for this village. We must pray for this town. We went from place to place. A year and a half ago, we'd gone throughout Romania and we'd seen God move in mighty ways. Many, many hundreds and thousands come to Christ. And I'll never forget as I was going into Romania a year and a half ago, I came up to the border on a train and the border guards came out and they held us for about an hour. 
the train. And then they came, four soldiers, marching very briskly with machine guns towards the train. And I was looking out the window and I thought to myself, you know, somebody must be in trouble. And I didn't know that it was me. They came marching to the train. They came on the train. They came to my cabin and they said, Mr. Tippett, come with us. They pulled me off the train and they took me and they surrounded me. And they held me under guard there. And oh, I'll never forget how despondent and broken hearted I was. I didn't know what they were going to do to me. I didn't know if I was going to prison or what was going to happen. But they kept me all night and the next day under guard. And as I sat there the first few hours, I have to be honest with you, I had one real big pity party. And I just felt sorry for myself. I didn't know if I'd see my wife, my children again. I didn't know if, uh, I, I didn't know what was going to happen that evening. I knew that I would probably never see my friends in Romania again. I don't have time to go into the whole story, but God just moved and worked in my own life. And He taught me to look to Him in those moments. That the source of authority and the source of power is not in Bucharest. Bucharest had given them orders to arrest me the moment I entered the country. But I want to tell you something. The real source of authority and power is the hands of God. And I realized something. I realized that when they were holding me captive, that I was not their prisoner. They were my prisoner. And so I began to worship the Lord. And I began to sing, Great is thy faithfulness. I began to sing, How great thou art. I began to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as I began to sing and just worship God and get my focus off my circumstances and my situation and get my focus on God Himself and get my sights upon Him and His character and His attributes and the knowledge of Him, something happened in me. I realized as I began to see God and and just get my focus upon Him, I realized that those men didn't have the faintest idea what I was doing. I was singing in English. And so I decided to sing in Romania. And so I began to sing in the Romanian language. And as I began to sing in Romanian, I, I decided, I said, you know, they can't leave me. So I began to preach to them. And all night long, I mean, I had a captive audience. They couldn't leave. And I shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And you see, I realized that He's on the throne. The next day they were so frustrated, they came out. First train that came to the West, they gave me my passport and they put me on it. I got on the train and it was full and there was only one cabin with any seats. There was a group of young people who were punk rockers. You know, their hair was going every which way, colored every different direction. And, and you know, I had got on the train and, and I got in their cabin and they looked at me. I was so tired I hadn't slept or eaten in two days. And, you know, I was, I was, I was just exhausted. They looked at me and I looked worse than them. And they said to me, you know, they said, man, what happened to you? And I told them I'd been arrested. They said, oh, that's exciting, man, far out, you know. Tell us about it. And you know what? They were a captive audience all the way to Vienna, Austria. I preached to them the whole way. But you see, I had to get my focus on God. I had to get my focus on God. But something happened whenever I was arrested and kicked out of the country. Something happened with my friends. They had been praying. They had been praying. Oh, God. They had been praying for souls. They had been praying for men and women to come to Christ. They had been praying for, for people to come to know the Lord. But they, they began to quit praying in that manner. And they began to pray in a different manner. And this is how they began to pray. They began to pray and they said, Oh God, how long, how long will you allow the blasphemers to blaspheme your name in this nation?
And they begin to pray for the glory of God in the nation of Romania. A year and a half went by. I would have never dreamed that on January 1st, 1990, I would have entered again to the nation of Romania. And when I did enter, I found something that I could have, in my wildest imagination, I would have never, never have considered would have happened. When I got there, you have to understand that for the last 45 years in that nation, people have been taught there is no God. They have been brainwashed with atheism, with Marxism, and with communism. And when I arrived in the nation, I discovered that the cloud of atheism that was over the nation and where the masses of people were continually marched into the major cities, Bucharest, Timisoara, Orani, Arad, Yash, in the major cities of Romania. And they were, they were required to sing unto Ceausescu and to praise and to worship Ceausescu. When I got there in the streets of those same cities, I discovered that in the midst of the revolution that took place, Peter Dugalescu, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Timisoara, dear friend of mine, stood up in the midst of the revolution with 200,000 people in the square, and he began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, these people who had been taught there is no God, scientific evolution, for 45 years, they had been brainwashed from kindergarten to postgraduate level university. They had been brainwashed with this. These same people in that square begin to shout, Existe Dumnezeu! Existe Dumnezeu! There is a God! There is a God! There is a God! When he finished preaching, the people began to cry. Dumnezeo yeste kunoi. Dumnezeo yeste kunoi. God is with us. God is with us. And at the conclusion of his sermon, 200,000 people who had claimed atheism prior to this got on their knees and he led them in praying the Lord's Prayer. The theme song of the revolution was a song about the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the TV station was taken, ABC, CBS, NBC have not reported this, but I want to tell you that when the TV station was taken, the, the place of mass communication, the first words uttered over the television station were Dumnezeo Yestekunoi, God is with us. All over the nation as I travel, I found this sense of the knowledge of God. Now, I'm not talking about a conversion experience. The nation has not been converted to Christ. Please do not misunderstand me. That's the challenge of the church today. But I want to tell you something. The philosophy of atheism has been completely removed from that nation. God has worked there in a way that is mighty. And I believe it's because the people of God... Learn to pray. And they were a people of prayer. The one characteristic that I've discovered within the life of the church in Romania is that they are a praying people. You see, they are a needy people and they know it. There's no difference in them and us. We are a needy people. The only problem is we don't know it. We haven't really comprehended that authority and power is at the throne of God.
And we've attempted to turn the tide of evil in this land with political power, with political maneuvering. And I believe we ought to be involved in politics as Christians. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But I want to tell you something. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And if this nation is to return to the greatness, the foundation of the greatness upon which we were founded, we need a knowledge of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones has given a definition of revival. He said revival is simply when God is known as God. And revival in your personal life is when you are on that journey in that walk of getting to know Him. Getting to know Him in the power of His resurrection, in the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed unto His image. It is That's what revival is. It's no spooky thing. It's no big splash of something. It is the knowledge of God in the life of the individual believer. That's revival. If you're on the journey of getting to know Him, of walking in Him, of fellowship with Him, that's revival. Revival in a church is when that church is under the awesome sense that God, He is God. Revival in a community is when that community is aware that God, He is God. Revival in a nation is when that nation comes under the awesome sense that God, He is God. Isaiah had a vision. He had an upward vision. He saw the Lord exalted, high and lifted up. The, the train of His robe filled the temple. The glory of God was there. But when he saw that, he saw something else. The angels cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The missing message in the American church today is the holiness of God. Roy Hessian said that he had experienced revival in Eastern Africa and he came back to Britain. And he said, my people have the strangest idea as to what revival is. They think it's the top blowing off. He said, it's not the top blowing off. Many times it's the bottom falling out. You see, we, we in America sensationalize everything. And we think revivals, all of these super magnificent, wonderful things happening, when many times it's not the top blowing off. Many times revival is the bottom falling out because it's in the fire. It's in the fire that we really get to know God. It's in those times of difficulties that many times we experience the fullness of the knowledge of God. It's not the great, splashy, sensational. But it says we get to know Him as a holy God. The angels cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Notice that they said three times, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Everything about God is holy. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Spirit is holy. And I want you to know something. As you get to know God in His holiness, and you see God in His holiness, you will not only have an upward vision, but you will have an inward vision. You will see yourself in the light of the holiness of God. And as you see yourself in the light of the holiness of God, then you're going to be broken because Isaiah cried out, Woe is me! 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw God in His holiness. He saw God in the beauty of holiness. And He was broken. He was broken. Because He saw God. That word holy means set apart. God is set apart from all of creation. He is absolute purity. He's not just pure. He is absolute purity. As you see Him in His absolute purity, you're going to see yourself in the light of Him. And you'll cry out, woe is me. I have an old football scar. It's hard to see. If I hold my hand like this, it's very difficult to see. But if I, if I move it towards the light, the closer it gets to the light, the more obvious that scar becomes. And you see, the holiest will become the humblest. We have this little saying here in America, well, that guy's holier than thou. I want to tell you something. It's impossible to be holier than thou because holiness, when you see the holiness of God, you don't compare yourself to others. You see yourself in the light of God and you are stricken. You are stricken. We were talking about this thing of humility. And I asked two friends of mine, I said, how do you get humility? If humility is so important where, where we began this morning, I said, how do you get it? How do you get this sense of humility? One of them said to me, these were two young Romanians. One was a young physicist. The other was my friend Titus. And the young physicist said this. He said, you know, humility is a strange thing. The moment that I think I've apprehended it, it seems to have escaped me. You see, you can't wear your humility on your sleeve. I don't know if you've heard about the man who received the award for being the most humble man in his church. They gave him a button, but they had to take it away because he wore it all the time. You can't wear your humility. You see, you can't just go around and say, well, I'm humble, you know, and look humble. That's not humility. Humility is an inward attribute. And so I said, how do you get humility? All grace, every grace comes from a heart of humility. For the scripture says in 1 Peter and also in the book of James that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. It's the humble. So if grace comes to the heart of humility, then where do we get grace? I mean, where do we get humility? Where does it come from? And then Titus said this to me. He said, Sammy, it comes as I get to know God. The more I get to know His character, His attributes, His nature, the more I get to know Him and I see Him in His absolute purity and sovereignty, I am humbled by the knowledge of God. And the more you get to know God, and the more you see Him in, in the beauty of His holiness, in His absolute splendor, in His perfection, the more you see Him, the more you will be broken before Him. The great revival of Wells, there was a cry, and the cry was this, bend the church and save the people. A young man by the name of Evan Roberts heard a preacher preach on that subject. And at the close of the service, he found himself on his face crying out, Bend me, oh God, bend me. And under the presence of God, young Roberts was a bent and broken young man. And as he was broken before God, he went back to his home church and asked if he could speak. He said he had a message and he spoke a message to that church. Within the next six months, there were a 100,000 people in Wells who came to Jesus Christ as young Roberts was bent and broken before the Lord. Oh, I believe, I believe we need a generation, a generation of young people who know God, who are not trying to build their own empires. We've got enough empires. A, young, a, a generation of young people who are kingdom seekers.
who said, God, I want you and your kingdom, your honor and your glory. A group of young people who have God before their eyes in such a way that they are broken before Him and they walk in a sense of humility. Not spiritual arrogance, but a sense of humility and who will go out and infect and affect this nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a third part of his vision, a final part that I want to share with you. Isaiah had an upward vision. He saw God. He had an inward vision. He saw himself in the light of God. But watch this. He had an outward vision. He saw a world in need. God said, after Isaiah cried out, the angel of the Lord came and touched him. And Isaiah received forgiveness from God. And as he was graced by God, and he experienced that forgiveness and the beauty of forgiveness, the, 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 he heard a voice say, the Bible says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You see, he had an upward vision. Then he had an inward vision. He saw his need. Once he saw God, he saw his need of God. He was broken. God cleansed him. God forgave him. And then he had an outward vision. And he saw the world around him. And oh, I want to leave this with you, young people, today. There is a world. A world that is so needy. A world that is hurting. A world that is lost. A world that is militant. A world that is extreme. Secular humanism is rising to the occasion. Militant Islam is rising to the occasion. In September of this year, I spoke with and I met privately with a, a man by the name of Didot, who is the leading scholar of Islam in South Africa. He's debated Josh McDowell and many others. And I want to tell you something. They have an intensive training to reach the world for Islam. And in every nation I go, in every nation I go, they are radical and they are aggressive to reach the world. Everywhere I go. I just came back from Indonesia on Monday. When I got, when I was in Indonesia, a lady shared a testimony that her son, her 16-year-old son, went to a Christian youth meeting. And on his way to the Christian youth meeting, he was kidnapped by Muslims. And he was taken and forced to marry a Muslim girl. They physically circumcised him. Twelve days later, he escaped. He cannot live in Indonesia. At this time, it's too dangerous for him. He's living somewhere in Australia right now. I want to tell you something. I wish, I wish, I wish I could say to you, there's a battle. There's a battle. And while we sit around in our comfortable pews and build our nice buildings and sing our wonderful songs, there is a battle going on in the world. We need people who have a vision. First of all, a vision of God. Please do not go out into the world if you do not have the mark of the character of the knowledge of God upon your soul. Please do not go into the world with an arrogant, proud spirit. There's enough of this proud Americanism going around the world today. We don't need that. We need some... A generation of young people who sing God, who have the mark of God, who are not committed to just the splashy and the flashy, but who know God. 
We have His character marked upon the soul and are growing in the relationship with Him who will go out humbly, broken before the Lord and see a world and go into a battle for the souls of men throughout the world. My friend Titus, he traveled with me for eight years throughout Romania. By the way, he was elected during the Revolution, he was elected to be a part of the new transitional government. He is a part of that new transitional government right now. I asked him, I said, Titus, how did you get elected? He said, when, 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 when everything came and happened, it happened so fast, no one was expecting it, and no one to this day knows anything about democracy. As a matter of fact, many of the problems you're reading about in the papers because they don't understand democracy. For 45 years, there's an entire generation they have not heard about democracy. They have no conception of democracy. He said, but I had read some of Francis Schaeffer. And I understood a little of the workings of democracy. And whenever I began to speak before the masses, they pushed me into this position. Titus traveled with me prior to the revolution. He traveled with me throughout the nation. And he would interpret for me. We were in Bucharest and I wanted to do something nice for him. So we went to a real nice Restaurant. There are only about one or two in all of Romania. But there was one at the top of the Hotel Intercontinental across from the American Embassy, and we went there to eat. We went in and we sat down, and I'll never forget, I was overlooking the city of, I was overlooking the city of Bucharest. You could see just thousands and thousands of these high-rise apartment buildings, the multitudes of people, and I was overlooking that, and and that scripture came to me, and I began to quote it, except I changed it. That scripture where, where, where Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. And I began to quote that, except that I said, Oh, Bucharest, oh, Bucharest. And whenever I said that, I looked over at Titus, and tears running down his face. And for ten minutes, none of us could speak. We knew we were with a man who had the heart of God for his people. We wept for 10 minutes. We left Bucharest and went to a city right on the Soviet border. No one from the West had ever been there. We went there to preach. I was going to be encouraging the church and challenging the church with revival, but when I got there, I've never preached a meeting like this in America, but they had the deacons standing at the doors. You know what the job of the deacons of that church were, was? The job of the deacons was to make sure no Christians got inside the church building. Only non-Christians were allowed in the building. And they packed the church with non-Christians. The Christians stood outside in the cold. They climbed up into in little spaces and little rooms all on the outside and stayed there. And the non-Christians filled that place. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like I'm standing before you in a totally non-Christian audience right before me. And I preached. And people came to Christ and oh, it was wonderful. And, and so every night after the service was over, we went down to the uh, Danube River and we would pray down there for about two hours. And it was in the middle of the winter and so there was ice and snow all on the ground. And I remember we were down there praying. And I'll never forget Titus was on his knees and his hands crying unto the Lord for his people, asking God to save the Romanian people, to bring them to Christ. And I'll never forget the prayer that he prayed. And this is what he prayed. He said, Oh God. If it takes the blood of the martyrs to bring my people to Jesus, then I want to be the first to offer my blood. I never heard a man pray like that. With such passion. With such passion. 
for his fellow countrymen. I want to tell you something. And, you know, I've been criticized, some by saying, well, I've glamorized the Romanian Christians, but I want to say, I have not seen anywhere in the world what God is doing in that nation. The, they have their own problems. They have their own difficulties within the life of the church. And I don't want to belittle that, but I do want to say that God is doing something as I have never seen anywhere in the world. And it comes from men and women who have the mark of God on their inner man. We have a vision of God who are walking in the grace and the knowledge of God who are broken before the Lord who have a vision of a world a world that's lost a world that's in need of Christ. Titus prayed with the heart of Christ. There's a generation you're that generation it's faced with a choice. What will you do? You can have a vision for building an empire. You can have a vision for being the best evangelist, the best teacher, the best this, the best that in America. Or you can have a vision for the glory of God. The glory of God, not the superficial stuff that we're talk, seeing in America so much today. But I'm talking about a deep work of God that changes the hearts and lives of men and women. An upward vision. An inward vision. An outward vision. What's your vision? Let's pray together.